You're listening to West Coast Water Justice, where we talk about water in the Western United States. I'm your host, Natalie Kilmer. And in this episode, we interview Clifford Lee, retired Deputy Attorney General with the California Department of Justice. We hear about California water policy updates that are needed to cope with climate change and the agencies that regulate and move water throughout the state. My name is Clifford Lee, and I'm a former Deputy Attorney General with the California Attorney General's Office. Well, thanks for being with us, Clifford. Can you share some about your background and work protecting California's water? Certainly, Natalie. I graduated from UC Davis Law School in 1976 and began my work in the field of water resource law as a young staff attorney with the Governor's Commission to Review California Water Rights Law in 1977 through 1978. After that time, I took a position with the California Attorney General's Office in their natural resource law section, where I focused primarily on water resource litigation, working on litigation relating to the Bay Delta estuary, also matters relating to endangered species and the protection of California native fisheries. I retired about one and a half years ago and have been working on some small projects on a pro bono basis since that time. Okay. Well, it sounds like you've been at it for a while. Based on your experience in water policy, what's the big picture as you see it? Well, I think the big picture, something that has troubled me in my over 40-year career working on water resource issues, is the need for the policymakers and the public to reject the deeply held beliefs of the past about water. That either through God's will or through human endeavors, you assume when you turn on the tap, usable water will always be there. It was an article of faith among the 19th century settlers of the West that water would always follow the plow. For all of our 21st century sophistication, our beliefs really are no different than those held by those 19th century settlers. We plant orchards on desert land and build vast housing subdivisions without a local water supply and assume that the water will be there. Climate change no longer allows us to hold these delusions. I would submit that within our lifetime, or certainly our children's lifetime, there's a real risk that absent reforms Our native fisheries will go extinct, and Californians will not be able to count on clean water when they turn on their taps. Well, that sounds pretty dire. What do you think are the most important aspects of water policy in the state, and why do you think the general public should care? Everyone who works in water has their own set of key issues. I have three. The first is the extinction crisis facing California's native fisheries. According to Peter Moyle, one of the leading experts on California native fish, of the over 125 native fish species in California, close to 100 of them are at risk of going extinct within the next 50 years. Many have already gone extinct, 
and a number of them are listed as endangered or threatened species under federal or state law. The second important issue is to update our water rights administration to address drought and climate change. Well, what do I mean about that? Well, water rights are what are in essence property rights in water, that the ability to divert water from a stream is not something that can come without some government authority. And in California, we have a patchwork system for our surface water rights that includes elements of English common law, gold mining custom, and a statutory permit system that generally requires people who divert and store water to secure a permit from a state agency. This patchwork system is not a unified one, and it's not well adjusted to address the future of drought and climate change. And so we have to take a look at that patchwork system and see if we can develop a more unified system that allows us efficiently, effectively, and nimbly to address water efficiencies that will likely come from drought and climate change. And lastly, the third issue that I think is important is there is a need to address the fairness and equity issues raised by the human right to water. In 2012, the California legislature adopted very short legislation that declared the existence of a human right to water. This right is primarily, although not exclusively, directed at helping disadvantaged communities that have difficulty securing a reliable and clean water supply. However, this was simply a policy statement and has not been one that has been further amplified through implementing legislation. A key issue in the 21st century is to implement more effectively this human right to water. So those are, I think, the three areas that are of primary concern to me. Okay, thanks for spelling that out. Yeah, so why should we care? (laughs) Why should the public care about this? Well, if the potential extinction of California's native fisheries is not enough to give one pause, let's just consider one potential nightmare. Commonly, when I speak at conferences or on panels, I'll be asked the question, as a water specialist in California, Clifford, what is it that keeps you up at night? All right. Well, let me just give you just one example. My water nightmare is that extreme drought conditions and climate change-induced sea level rise will break down the hydrologic freshwater barrier that keeps ocean saltwater from reaching the interior delta. As you folks all know, California is laced by two major streams. Uh, One is the Sacramento River that moves from north to south, and the other is the San Joaquin River that moves from south to north. Those two rivers meet in an area of California known as the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. That fresh water then moves west through the estuary and eventually reaches San Francisco Bay. What extreme drought and climate change will potentially do is break down the hydrologic freshwater barrier that keeps ocean salt water from reaching the interior delta. As a result, the chloride, which is salt, content of water diverted by delta water agencies such as the Contra Costa Water District, will significantly exceed 250 milligrams per liter, which is 
the minimum saline standard for drinking water. If salt water reaches further into the interior delta, it will occur at the State Water Project and the Federal Central Valley Project South Delta pumping plants. Now, what are those? The two major water projects in California are the Federal Central Valley Project and the State Water Project. Those projects have storage facilities on the Sacramento River and its tributaries, and they divert water from two large pumping plants in the Southern Delta. If extreme drought and climate change induce sea level rise, drives salt water into the interior delta, those pumping plants can no longer deliver usable and drinkable water. And 25 million Californians will lose their project-delivered drinking water supply for an indeterminate period. So why should we care? Well, because more than half of California depends on the Delta for safe and reliable drinking water. That's a pretty scary notion, and it should wake us all up to look seriously about where our water comes from and how it's managed. Can you tell us about the Planning Conservation League and the recent water law reform report that you worked on? The Planning and Conservation League is a long-standing environmental organization in California that is involved in many environmental issues, including water resource management. I think quite highly of them. I think they are a responsible agency that generally does good work. However, I just want to make something quite clear, and that is while the Planning and Conservation League hosted the group of water specialists that has authored the most recent report uh, entitled Updating California Water Laws to Address Drought and Climate Change. Their role in regard to the preparation of the report was merely to provide logistics such as hosting Zoom sessions and the like. The Planning and Conservation League did not have a role in the approval of any aspect of the report. The report's recommendations are solely those of the water specialists who the Planning and Conservation League brought together to create the report. Those specialists include many of the most notable academics in California working in the field of water resource management, many from universities such as the University of California and Stanford University. It was the good fortune of the Planning and Conservation League to develop the idea that we should bring these water specialists together to brainstorm what modernizing California water law for the 21st century would look like. But I want to stress it is the report of this water reform group, not the report of the Planning and Conservation League. Although the Planning and Conservation League endorses the report, they had no veto on any of the recommendations. Thanks for clarifying that. What inspired this report? Well, part of it is all of us experienced the drought of the last five to 10 years. And those who are even casually familiar with water policy and water resource management recognize that the state of California water law has a significant role in how we respond to this drought. Most importantly, the last comprehensive effort to look at this subject was in 1978. Uh, At that time, the newly elected governor, Jerry Brown, in his first administration, appointed a commission to review California water rights law, which came up with a report on water law reform. 
Some of the recommendations the legislature adopted, many were not adopted. But that was 44 years ago. And there has been no effort to comprehensively review California water rights law since that time. And so the new issues of the 21st century uh, have not played into the development of any water reform measures really in the 21st century. Certainly no comprehensive effort has been made to look at the system. And that was the purpose of the PCL effort to bring these water resource specialists together. Can you highlight some of the most important recommendations for us? They follow the three issues that I had mentioned earlier in this interview. The threat of fish extinction, updating water rights, management to address climate change, and the human rights to water. Now, I want to say that while I am pleased with all of these recommendations, I think the group would generally agree this is not the last word on what needs to be done for water rights reform. I can think of many other things that we might want to include in recommending water reforms. And there are a lot of other real smart people in the state who have the ability to make contributions to this effort. But this was an effort to open the debate on reforming water rights law for the 21st century, not an attempt to cover every water rights and water resource law issue that the state needs to address. So with that introduction, let's go through the primary recommendations. First, as we've noted earlier, there is a genuine threat that California's native fishery species may go extinct or a significant number of them may go extinct this century. So what did this water reform group recommend? Well, one of the most immediate things the water group felt needed to be done was this 27-year delay in developing new water quality objectives for the protection of fishery resources that I mentioned earlier. This delay by the State Water Resources Control Board is simply unacceptable public policy. The State Water Resources Control Board has the authority to revise its 1995 water quality objectives to protect fish. It has the legal tools to implement new water quality objectives. And the 27-year delay is simply an unacceptable public policy failure. So a key component of the Water Reform Group's recommendation is that the Water Board must complete this process, develop new water quality objectives for the protection of fishery resources, and based upon information that the State Water Resources Control Board staff publicly disclosed, the Water Reform Group recommended that the Water Board complete this process by no later than December 2023. Now, this means that this process should be completed regardless of the status of the voluntary agreement discussions that are ongoing. In other words, if the stakeholders in the voluntary agreement process that are trying to produce a negotiated outcome can't come to agreement by December 2023, then the board should go ahead and meet its statutory obligations and issue new water quality objectives for the Bay Delta estuary. Now, what if the Water Board doesn't do that? It's not uncommon for legislation to set deadlines for public agencies, and for many reasons, those deadlines are not met. 
Well, the water group said we should develop an incentive to ensure that this process is completed by December 2023. And one of the things the water board has in its toolbox is that it issues water right permits and it amends water right permits for the diversion and storage of water. As many of your listeners may be aware, there is a strong drumbeat among certain elements of the water community to build new water supply projects. There is Sites Reservoir, which has been proposed for the Sacramento Valley. There is the enlarged Shasta Dam proposal, which would enlarge Shasta Dam on the Sacramento River. There is the proposed Temperance Flat project, which has been proposed for the headwaters of the San Joaquin River. What the water group said is, if the water board fails to meet the uh, December 2023 standard, the water board would be barred from issuing any new water right permits or extensions of time uh, for completion of existing projects until such time as the new fishery objectives for the Bay and Delta are set. What this means, in fact, is that new water projects can't even go forward, and by that I mean surface water uh, storage facilities, where those projects divert from the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta until the new science on fishery protection and the recommendations for fishery protection that science supports are actually in place. And there's some logic to this. You do not want to have the cart before the horse. Before you build new water supply projects in California, if you choose to build them at all, you have to know what is the state of California's fisheries and what is necessary to protect those fisheries. So this is simply common sense. So the most important fishery recommendation that the Water Reform Group came up with is water board, complete your water quality planning process, develop water quality objectives for the protection of fish. And if you don't do that, then you can't approve new water rights permits for the numerous surface water development projects that are on the water agenda in some elements of the water community. A second reform for the protection of fishery resources is the amendment of a provision in the Fish and Game Code, which has been used to protect fishery resources. And this section, known as Section 5937 of the Fish and Game Code, has been used a number of times in California to protect fishery species. The section, in essence, says that owners and operators of the dams have to keep sufficient water passing through their dams to keep fish in good condition below the dam. The Natural Resources Defense Council uses provision to require that the federal project on the San Joaquin River, known as Fryant Dam, had to change its operations in order to ensure that sufficient flow passed through Fryant Dam down the San Joaquin River to protect the San Joaquin River salmon. Well, that's all in good. The section is a helpful state law provision to protect fish. But one of the things it doesn't consider is that sometimes having water pass through your dam is not alone sufficient to protect the fish, you have to consider the temperature of the water. As we know from the Sacramento River, passing through warm water through your dam downstream into the Sacramento River will not protect fishery species that are temperature sensitive. And I'm talking in particular 
about the Central Valley salmon, where as the salmon smolt outmigrate from their spawning grounds, they need to have cold water. And that water has to be below 56 degrees, and in some cases, significantly below 56 degrees. So the water reform group that I was a member of recommended that Section 5937 of the Fish and Game Code be amended to say that not only should owners and operators of dams be required to bypass sufficient flow to keep fish in good condition, but also to bypass flow of a sufficient temperature that the fishery downstream would be protected. I think, again, this is just a common sense updating of the statute to reflect the science we have learned regarding fish species in the Central Valley. The temperature of the water for fish such as salmon is as important as the amount of flow in the river. So those are the two fishery protection measures that the group recommended. One, mandating completion of the water quality control plan fishery objectives, and two, amending Fish and Game Code Section 5937. There may be many other things, and this is not the final word, but I think these recommendations will help. As to the second component, updating water rights administration to address climate change. There are a number of technical recommendations about providing for the consolidation of California water rights law as it applies to surface water management, but I'm not going to go into all of those. The one I really would like to focus on is the recommendation that when the water board issues water right permits, it incorporates within it the science and the hydrology we know exists regarding what climate change will do to the flows within watersheds. Now, what do I mean by all of that? Well, I I hope this doesn't dive too much into the technicalities of water rights law, but I, I think it's important for your listeners to understand. When a water project comes before the board and they will say, we want to build this water project, say Sites Reservoir or Enlarged Shasta, all right, the water board as a matter of law, has to make a judgment on whether there is water available in the stream to be diverted and stored by the projects that are being proposed. In other words, the project proponent has to show to the board that there is sufficient water available for the project. That requires, first of all, the project proponent and the water board to determine what is the flow, total unimpaired flow in the river, which is, that is, how much water is in the river flowing at the point of the project, assuming we had no dams and no diversions at all. That's the concept of unimpaired flow. Then the water board and the project proponent has to make a determination of how many other users there are on the stream and how much they're diverting because they're senior users And you can't take water from other water diverters. And you find out how much water downstream users take from the river. And then third, you have to find out how much water do you need to keep in the river to protect public interest values such as fish and wildlife. You take those last two components, how much water senior water right users are using and how much water is necessary to be kept in the stream for the public interest for fishery needs and other needs. And then you subtract that from the amount of unimpaired flow that you determine is in the river. And if there's any water left over, 
you determine whether that's sufficient for your water project. That's what's called the water availability analysis. Well, as you might guess, much of the judgment about water availability is based upon your premise of how much water do you have in the stream to begin with. And this is a much more complicated question than you might think. The historical practice for determining water availability has been to look at the historical records for water within the watershed your project is proposed to be built upon. You take a look at water gauges, which are usually throughout the watershed. You determine how much water those gauges have recorded over a prior period, usually of decades, maybe as many as 40 years. Uh, You incorporate drought years, wet years, average years, and you make a determination of how much flow is in the river. That becomes the number you use in determining water availability. Well, as you can see, this is all backward-looking data. It's historical data. What the Water Board has not done, and water projects have not been required to do, is to look at how judgments regarding the total flow of a watershed are going to be affected by climate change. And we know they're going to be affected by climate change. Climate change will reduce the amount of precipitation that falls within a watershed as snow and increase the amount of precipitation that will fall as rain. The precipitation amounts will likely arrive earlier in the season, that is earlier in the spring rather than later in the summer, because with less snow runoff and more rain, the water will come in the winter and the spring and will be not as available in the summer. We know that the precipitation season will be reduced. And we also know from climate change that we will have more extreme droughts and the droughts will be more frequent. So if you are going to set your water availability analysis based on historical data rather than the future forecast that climate change models will tell you, then you are going to vastly overstate the amount of water that's available in the river. And that will significantly cripple your water availability analysis. So one of the key recommendations that the Water Reform Group has proposed is we have requested that the legislature adopt legislation that would require the board to develop water availability regulations that expressly incorporate the new science of climate change and use forward-looking data data that incorporates what our climate change models tell us the hydrology of a watershed will be in determining water availability. Now, why is this important? Well, obviously, we should wait and see what these climate change models tell us. But I think it is not an unreasonable assumption that they will tell us we have less water available for new water supply projects. And that the water supply projects that rely on a water availability analysis based on historical data may turn out not to be feasible because it may turn out that there won't be any water. I call the past practice the waiting for Godot fallacy. Uh, I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with Samuel Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot, but the key part about waiting for Godot in the play is that Godot never arrives. 
Well, with climate change, the water you anticipate for new projects may also not arrive. And we should therefore not uh, fall for that fallacy, but we should create common standards and methods for determining water availability that fully, completely, and honestly incorporate climate change in their projections. I think this is kind of a sleeper recommendation within the water reform group's recommendations and is one that may have far-reaching consequences in terms of our judgments about when surface water development can move forward and when it can't. Thanks for going into all that. I read the recommendations and I was surprised that some of them weren't already enacted. There are many, many things that can be done in this area. We have a couple of recommendations on the human rights to water, an issue that had not been available in 1978 when the last review had been developed. As you know, disadvantaged communities are adversely affected by water resource decisions and need to have a role. The Water Reform Group recommended at least two recommendations that are helpful here. One, it would require that the State Water Resources Control Board and the Regional Water Quality Control Boards, as your listeners may know, for water quality management, the state is divided into water quality regions and there are regional water quality control boards. And the Water Reform Group recommended that at least one member of each of those boards have an experience in environmental justice. So uh, that's an important recommendation to try to incorporate disadvantaged communities into our water resource planning process. And secondly, the group recommended, following the model used in the Public Utilities Commission, that the legislature consider setting up a fund that would provide the reasonable and necessary financial assistance to non-governmental agencies and tribal organizations that wish to participate in the administrative proceedings before the State Water Resources Control Board of the Regional Water Quality Control Boards. Those proceedings are time-consuming and they are costly. Currently, the California Public Utilities Commission has a fund that is created solely to assist ratepayer groups, as you know, the Public Utility Commission sets utility rates, who want to participate in Public Utility Commission proceedings to compensate those groups for reasonable and necessary expenses that they incur when they participate in Public Utility Commission proceedings and where their participation has had a meaningful effect on the Public Utility Commission decision-making process. There seems to be no reason why we couldn't transfer that model that has been in existence for many years in the Public Utility Commission to the Water Resource Control Board processes. So those two recommendations, I think, would be helpful in advancing environmental justice and assisting the implementation of the human right to water. That sounds like it would be very helpful because some of these litigations go on for years even. Yes. We've mentioned at least a few times the State Water Resources Control Board. It sounds like they do a lot of different things. Maybe you can give us in a nutshell what they do so we can understand a little bit better. Sure. The State Water Resources Control Board is a five-member board appointed by the governor. It has a major staff. They have some excellent biologists, engineers, and a staff of water rights lawyers that are probably 
the best water rights and water quality lawyers in the state. I have always been impressed with both the, the scientific engineering and legal staff. The State Water Resources Control Board has two primary functions. One, it is to issue water right permits for the diversion and storage of water and to administer and manage those permits over time. So if you want to build a water project, you come to the water board, as I mentioned earlier, and if there's water available for your project that doesn't hurt other water users and doesn't impair public interest values, the water board may issue a water right permit subject to permit terms and conditions for the protection of fishery resources, among other things. The water board can reopen that permit if new evidence establishes that your project diversions and storage harm fishery resources, and the board has done that with some frequency. Much of the litigation I handled for the State Water Resources Control Board in my 40 years at the Attorney General's office was to represent the board when it reopened water right permits to impose new fishery protections on a water diverter based upon the new science that had been developed since the issuance of the permit. So there is a diversion regulation component for the water board. The water board regulates the diversion and storage of water. The other major component is the water quality component, and it primarily regulates the discharge of waste into our watersheds. So this discharge aspect is governed through what are called waste discharge requirements, which are in essence a permit that the water board issues to entities that discharge water and discharge waste into watersheds. Those permits will include terms and conditions that require you to clean up your discharge, reduce your pollution, and protect the rivers to which you are discharging your waste into. These requirements have gotten much more rigorous over time and have been extremely expensive and have required industry and agriculture to alter their practices. The board can enforce both its water right requirements and its waste discharge requirements with administrative enforcement actions that can include extensive civil penalties. There's commonly an interrelationship between these aspects of the State Water Resources Control Board. And so the board will sometimes have to address both water rights and water quality activities in the same proceeding. But those are the two primary functions of the State Water Resources Control Board. In terms of the water quality component, it's a little bit different from the water rights component because the water quality responsibilities are allocated among several regional water quality control boards that the state is divided into. Those regional water quality control boards do the first job of issuing these waste discharge permits, but any decision of the regional water quality control board can be appealed to the state water board. In the water rights field, there is no equivalent regional boards, and all the decisions are made by the State Water Resources Control Board. Can you tell us about the relationship between the State Water Resources Control Board and the Department of Water Resources, DWR? We have talked a little bit about the State Water Resources Control Board, and as we have mentioned, it is a regulatory agency. It regulates the diversion of water by water projects and the discharge of waste by waste dischargers, all for the protection 
of the public interest in the use of water. The Department of Water Resources is a separate agency. It is an agency whose primary function is to run the California State Water Project. The California State Water Project is the state analog to the Federal Central Valley Project. It was financed by the people of the state of California through California revenue bonds and California general obligation bonds. It has a major water storage facility on the Feather River in Butte County called Oroville Dam. Winter flows are stored there and released in the spring and the summer to go down through the Feather River. The Feather River is a tributary to the Sacramento River. That water reaches the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, traverses the Delta. Much of that stored water and natural flow in the Delta is then diverted by the State Water Project's pumping facility in the Southern Delta. The water is diverted into the California Aqueduct. It is then taken hundreds of miles down to Kern County, south of Bakersfield where the Edmondson pumping plant then pumps the water almost 2,000 feet straight into the air. It goes over the Hatchaby Mountains and then is distributed into the Southern California region with water reaching as far south as San Diego. The State Water Project delivers roughly 3 to 4 million acre-feet of water in a normal water year. It delivers water to much of the southern San Joaquin Valley for farming use. Some of the water goes to Santa Clara County as well. A large component then goes over the Tehachapi Mountains into Southern California for delivery to Los Angeles, urban communities in Southern California, all the way down to San Diego. When I give this talk in Southern California, and there are people from San Diego present, I say, you should remember, folks, that one out of every four glasses of water that you drink comes from the State Water Project, which really means it comes from Butte County in the Sacramento Valley, 600 or 700 miles away. That is the man-made plumbing that delivers water throughout the state, and it's run by the California Department of Water Resources. In effect, the California Department of Water Resources, as opposed to the State Water Resources Control Board, is a big water utility, and its job is to deliver water to 25 million Californians on a regular basis. It does so as an entity that runs diversion and storage facilities throughout the state that require water right permits that have been issued by the State Water Resources Control Board or the State Water Resources Control Board's predecessors. Thanks for breaking that down. Just to paraphrase what you just explained, the Department of Water Resources runs the state water project and manages delivering and storing water across the state to 25 million Californians. And the State Water Resources Control Board is the regulating and permitting agency overseeing the Department of Water Resources. There's obviously a lot of moving pieces and different entities and interests involved. So I'm wondering how is the existential crisis for fish and wildlife in California made real to policymakers and the general public? This is a hard question to answer. I think many people will say fish come from the meat counter at Safeway and don't view the connection between the watersheds 
that are within their community and the fishery resources that they will use on a regular basis. Our lack of connectiveness in our consumption of food products and the source of those food products is a difficult problem with regard to the fishery issue. But the truth of the matter is, and this is something that we should never let up in our advocacy, is that the majority of California's native fisheries are under siege at the moment and may likely go extinct within the next 50 years. And what extinction means is they won't come back. So we have to trumpet up this danger. We already see that with a small species in the delta, a, a canary in the mine sort of species known as the delta smelt. We are increasingly likely to see that with at least one species of Central Valley salmon known as the winter run salmon. And this situation will only worsen when the hydrology that climate change will deliver to us changes the flow and temperature of water within our watersheds. So do we want to be the generation that destroys the bulk of California native fisheries? Is that going to be the legacy we leave our children? I hope not. So I think we have to disabuse people of notion that the fish they eat comes from the Safeway meat counter, but it comes in fact from watersheds. And care and management of our watersheds will ensure that our children will have those same resources. We just heard from Clifford Lee, retired Deputy Attorney General with the California Department of Justice. Thanks so much, Clifford, for the interview and all your public service. The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Save California Salmon or any entities mentioned. You've been listening to West Coast Water Justice, produced by me, Natalie Kilmer. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The music is from the album Now That's What I Call Surf by Tony Bald, Adam Anikias, and Danny Snyder. 